0: we don't see and believe that the Lord is our everything, if we don't take refuge in Him and His all-sufficient eternal provision, we'll constantly worry that our needs will not be met. But the one who takes refuge in God, well, such a one delights in the Lord's provision.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you've tuned in as we continue a message, Taking Refuge in the Lord. Jonathan, one of the things that uh, I found is sometimes it's useful to define our terms as we begin to look at a concept here. When you say taking refuge in the Lord, what does that actually mean?
0: Well, I think it really means to turn to God through Jesus Christ and find salvation in him. Ultimately, that's, that's the big-picture definition from the whole of Scripture. Taking refuge in the Lord means turning to Him through Christ and finding salvation in Him through His death on
1: the cross. I love that uh, definition. And for the believer today, so uh, appropriate and true. I'm thinking back, though, to the book of Psalms. Uh, we did not have the cross of Christ yet at that point in time. So how would the psalmist, do you think, have thought about this?
0: Well, I think for the psalmist, to take refuge in the Lord means to turn to him in faith, responding to all that the Lord has made known of himself at that point, responding to the promises and invitations of God that were given up to that point. And we know, looking back, that all those promises and all those invitations pointed to Christ and to the work that would be achieved in him. But I think for for the psalmist, it meant responding to what the Lord had made known at that point.
1: Well, we're gonna look at this a little bit further today. If you can, grab a Bible, join us in Psalm 16 as we continue a message, Taking Refuge in the Lord. Here is Jonathan.
0: Now, all of this is part and parcel of what it means to take refuge in God, as we see in verse one. See, there's, there's safety to be found in the people of God. Those who take refuge in the Lord will be those who take delight in his saints. None of us will escape the dangers of idolatry if we try and go it alone as Christians. We're just not up to doing that on our own. We need to encourage one another even daily to lift our eyes from the idols of the world and to live for something different. And if our deepest friendships and closest relationships are with those who are actually pulling in another direction, if we have little delight in the people of God and little time for the people of God well, we'll find ourselves very isolated and very vulnerable. It's a fascinating value judgment that David makes in verse 3 when he calls the saints of God, the people of God, the glorious ones. I don't think that's an obvious judgment to make. For much of Israel's history, the people of Israel, they looked Weak, they looked downtrodden, divided, and pretty doomed. The Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, in whatever age we're talking about, they probably would have looked like the glorious ones to the onlookers. In the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, well, his people didn't look all that glorious either. A ragged bunch of fishermen and social outcasts, little value in the eyes of the world. Then think of the apostles themselves, think of Paul shipwrecked, imprisoned, all the rest. And then think of the church today. We're pretty ordinary, most of us, not impressive in the eyes of the world, weak and sinful, feeble and flawed. Surely, glory is found in the leaders of society out there, the the wealthy, the, the clever, the influential, the powerful, the fashionable, the famous. Most of us, we don't tick too many of those boxes. But you see, David's tastes have been attuned to the tastes of God himself. His worldview has been reshaped by the Word of God. His value system has been recalibrated by the experience of God's grace. And he sees now through the eyes of faith that the people of God are truly, wonderfully glorious. And of course, it is a mark of Christian maturity for us to see that as well in our day, to see the glory of a life that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that is being changed by the Spirit of Jesus, so that each day that life looks a little bit more like Jesus. The glory, perhaps, of a not very educated or clever person who, by the grace of God and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has come to understand what the world's philosophers have not seen and will not understand. The glory of a people who may not be very wealthy and who, in any case, are sacrificially giving away their money to the work of the gospel, but who have eternal riches that the wealthy of this world they know nothing about. The glory of a gathering of people who shouldn't have all that much in common, who shouldn't perhaps get along with one another all that well, but who have discovered that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. As for the saints who are in the land, says David, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The one who takes refuge in God finds his delight in the people of God. Next, the one who takes refuge in God delights in the provision of God. Verse 5, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup, or more likely, as most translations have it, Lord, you are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Here the psalmist looks at his needs, his physical needs for food and drink and a home to live in. Perhaps those things have come to mind, actually, as he's given thought to the people of the nations running after their various idols. Perhaps those needs come to mind for us as we think of friends and family and neighbors running after food and home and financial security, striving for those things. And the psalmist says to the Lord, you, Lord, are my great treasure, my great belonging. In you is found the provision of all my needs. If you read any poll of people's top fears and concerns for the future, even for the new year, financial uncertainty normally ranks very, very high. Many people have embarked on 2019 with fears for their savings and their investments, with clouds looming on the global horizon and all the rest. But while the world looks on anxiously at the financial future, the psalmist commends to us a different perspective, a different approach for the believer. He shows us from his heart that the Lord is everything to him. And as he looks at what the Lord has done for him, he sees that the Lord has made his lot secure. He sees that in God he has a delightful inheritance. The reality is of course that we will never know true peace when it comes to finances when it comes to material things until we really have made the lord our everything until we are delighting most of all and above all things in our eternal inheritance in christ our world it will always tell us that we need more than we have if you have an accountant or a financial advisor they'll probably tell you on every visit that you should be saving more for your retirement for the kids' education, you should be putting in place more of a buffer. But as believers, you see, we do the crazy thing of giving away money. It's ridiculous. We give to the Lord's work, even as common sense says, stash it away, put it in place as a buffer for the future. For many here in this room, your giving to the work of the gospel would look reckless to the world. Surely your pension fund, it needs that. Surely your kids' education plan could do with a top-up. And we'll never escape that sense of needing to accumulate more and protect ourselves materially. We'll never escape that sense until we learn to truly delight in the Lord and in His provision for us. Verse 6 evokes an image of land division in ancient Israel, where each tribe was given a portion of land and then that was divided among families to be handed down from one generation to the next as an inheritance that came from the Lord. Similar imagery was actually coming to mind for me just the other day as we drove along the the 401 next to the St. Lawrence. And if you look at some old maps from the 18th and 19th century, you'll see that the land along the St. Lawrence was often broken up into tiny little strips given out to settlers to farm and to make something of it. And there would be these straight boundary lines along the edge of each parcel of land extending north from the river. And I think that's the picture here: as the people of God We know that our inheritance isn't ultimately a piece of real estate, but it is a home in heaven. It is a place in the new creation that God has prepared for His people. And we know that as the children of God, we have a delightful inheritance before us, a better home than any here on earth could enjoy. We don't see and believe that the Lord is our everything, that He has prepared an inheritance for us. For us, if we don't take refuge in Him and His all sufficient eternal provision, provision in this life and the next, we will live in constant fear of the material and the financial unknown. We'll constantly worry that our needs will not be met. And we'll pray the prayer of verse 1 with anxiety rather than faith if we pray it at all. But the one who takes refuge in God, well, such a one delights in the Lord's provision. Next, the one who takes refuge in the Lord, he delights also in the Lord's precepts, his teaching, his word. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. The David of Psalm 16 is also the same David of Psalm 119, verse 11, which you'll know I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, David was someone who knew the value of knowing Scripture, of hiding God's Word in his heart. And so as he lies on his bed at night, his heart instructs him with the Word of God, the Word that he knows, the Word that he has memorized. As he recalls God's Word in Scripture, David finds that God counsels him by the Word that is in his heart. We live in the great day and the great age of the Counselor, and the psychologist. Never before, I think, has there been such demand for the services of those who will advise us on our complex problems and our emotional needs. And of course, professionals in this field can offer great help in situations of need, but how much we would all be helped if we allowed the Lord to counsel us by His Word, even as we lie in bed at night, perhaps fretting or grieving or worrying or suffering to be able to receive the counsel of the Lord from His own Word as it is written on our hearts so that the Lord might call to mind for us truths that we've learned, gospel truths that we need to preach to ourselves afresh again and again. See, it's wonderful when that happens in a moment of need, but it can only happen if we know the Word of God and if that Word is written on our hearts. A little while ago, I heard a report that came from a professor at one of the leading seminaries in North America, a seminary that's actually trained a lot of met pastors over the years. And this professor was saying that in recent years, they've had to radically rethink their approach to ministry training because their students coming in for ministry training are coming in with such astoundingly poor Bible knowledge. They're having to start way back they can't dive straight into theology and languages and so on. They need to ta- teach basic biblical literacy, stuff that in a, a former generations the students would have come already knowing. One of the things I really value here at the Met is in our children's, in our youth ministry, is the high value placed on knowing Scripture and memorizing Scripture. It's a wonderful thing. I can take absolutely no credit for it. The emphasis long precedes me. But we find it wonderful that we can be traveling in our car and maybe have some music on, and there will be a a verse, a Bible verse, embedded in a a Christian kid's song, and our four-year-old will pipe up from the back seat. I know that verse. We learned it in Sunday school. And actually, the amount of Scripture that our kids are learning here is pretty astonishing. We, as parents, we just look on with wonder, and we feel we can take very little credit for it. But we're actually very thankful to all of you teachers and Iwana leaders for what you do. It's a heritage. It's a treasure for our children. My wife's grandfather was a decorated officer in the British Army who led a commando troop during the Second World War. He had grown up in a Christian home, and after the war, he served as a chaplain and, and a pastor. At the end of his life, his, his memory failed, and he suffered from very severe dementia. In the home where he was cared for, he could relive events from the war, but he reached the point where he had little idea where he was or who anyone around him was. Gemma uh, remembers visiting him right near the end when his mind had really gone, and he was failing physically, and she recounts her father. Reading to him from Romans chapter 8, you'll know the words, who will separate us from the love of Christ, So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as my father-in-law read those very triumphant words of deep comfort, he saw his father's lips moving in perfect tandem, recounting quite flawlessly the words of Scripture that were still there in his heart. Everything else was gone. But somewhere, deep within, the words of Romans eight were still there. He died later that day. They received word as they were in the car that he'd he'd passed away, and so it was actually on his deathbed, in the final night of his life on earth, if you like, that those Words he probably learned in childhood came to counsel him. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. If we would take refuge in the Lord, if we would know his protection in every season and trial, and terror of life. We must be those who have his word in our heart, that he might counsel us when the night comes, that we might hear his instruction, that we might set him always before us. Let me ask you as I ask myself, is God's word written on your heart? Do you know it? Are you feeding on it? Are you teaching it to your children? The day may well come when we have nothing left, no mental or physical strength. That day comes to many. But if we have the Word of God, we are ready to receive the Lord's counsel in our heart, even at night, even as we lie alone. The one who takes refuge in the Lord while he delights in his
1: precepts. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Taking Refuge in the Lord. And we're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message from Psalm 16 in just a few moments. If you ever want to find out more about Encounter the Truth, about Jonathan, or if you ever miss a broadcast and you want to listen to that, you can always come to the website and hope you'll do that. You can spend a little time there and just find out more about the ministry and about Jonathan. And if you do want to hear the program, you can stream it. Through your computer or mobile device, or you can download an MP3 for free. You're going to find those links and a lot more at encounterthetruth.org. Well, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Finally, the one who takes
0: refuge in the Lord delights in the Lord's protection. Verse 9 Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand." I don't know if you ever find this, but very often in reading one of the Psalms, you kind of hit a point where the declarations of the Psalms seem to go beyond anything the writer, David or Solomon or whoever, could actually have really said of himself and truly understand and truly mean. You see, when David says in verse 10 that the Lord won't allow him, his Holy One, his set-apart servant, to see decay, well, that right there, it looks like a misstep. You see, David died. David was buried, and David's body, it did decay. And that makes for a little bit of a challenge in reading this psalm. Whose lips do these words really belong upon? Where do they really fit? Now, we need to recognize that we're not the first ones to notice this challenge. And actually, the apostles got there first, and they knew the answer. Just have a look with me. Please turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here is Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. He's declared that Jesus has come and Jesus has died. And now he turns to the topic of his resurrection. And notice what he says, Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold of him. David said about him, and then what does he quote from? He quotes from the end of Psalm 16. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And Peter, he goes on to say the obvious thing, verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. As King in his own day, David said these words, but he spoke words that would only ultimately find their true fulfillment in the King to come, the Christ, the Messiah, and David's hope and David's trust in God, it would be vindicated when the Messiah himself faced death at the cross, died the death that all his people, David included, deserved, and when Jesus didn't stay dead, when his body was not allowed to decay, but was raised to life again, well, David's hope for life beyond the grave and our hope for life beyond the grave, it was vindicated, it was confirmed, it was proved true. See, verses 9 through 11 of our psalm, they proclaim the hope and the confidence that God will carry those who take refuge in Him. He will carry such a person through death and into the joy and the security of eternal life. And you see, Jesus is the man who trusted God perfectly and flawlessly, of whom this psalm, Psalm 16, is ultimately perfectly holy, true. He is the man, He is the King who found His only good in God the Father, who delighted in His people despite their sin and sometimes opposition to Him, who delighted in the Father's provision even though the road was often very hard, who delighted in the Father's protection even as He faced the cross. And Jesus, He proved the Father faithful and He proved Him true. And as he died, he said to the Father, Into your hand I commit my spirit because I can trust you. You will not allow me to see decay. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And what happened? What was the result? Well, we know the outcome, don't we? The Father raised him from death. He raised him to life once again. And the confidence of this psalm, the promise of these verses, they extend to us today through Jesus. He's opened the way through him, through the gospel. The Lord Jesus, he has made known to you and he has made known to me the path of life. And he offers us through the gospel joy in his presence, eternal pleasures at his right hand. I hope you know that way of life yourself. I hope you've come to Jesus to receive that life. I hope you found refuge in Him. If you haven't, let me say to you, even today, you can find it and you can have it. Today can be the day on which you receive it by faith. Only the Lord knows what dangerous trials, challenges await each one of us in 2019. If we're wise, we'll cry out with David, keep me safe, O God. But if we're to pray that, We must also be able to say, for in you I take refuge. I find my everything in you, Lord. My trust is in you. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I delight in your people. I delight in your provision. I delight in your precepts and your protection in this life and in the life to come.
1: Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, taking refuge in the Lord. As we've been looking at Psalm 16 today, what it means for us to take refuge in the Lord, how one who does do that, who takes refuge in God, will delight in his people, his provision, his precepts, and in his protection. But sometimes as we face some of the struggles in life, it feels like we're not necessarily experiencing the protection of God. I mean, just think of a cancer diagnosis. How do you feel when you hear those words? Well, Jeremy Marshall knows that. He was diagnosed with incurable cancer a number of years ago, and he's written a devotional book talking about connecting the difficulties that Christians face in this life with the deep-seated joy that's found in knowing Jesus. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as you give a financial gift of any amount to Encounter the Truth this month. You can give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.